Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your acceptance. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your healing hands. Thank you for this family that are called in your name. They're drawn to you. I pray that you're here with us, that your presence is mightily here. We sense your love. We feel your compassion. And we acknowledge your acceptance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Okay, we have a better picture for the second service. Um, so we just heard the gospel being preached. No, we did not yet being read. We heard the gospel. We listened to the words. And it's, uh, the passage is called, it's often named, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And it actually captures the gospel itself. It's, it's in short story, it captures the entirety of the gospel itself. <clears throat> now that, that we have listened to it, I want you to look at it. That's a painting from the Dutch master Rembrandt. And this too is in art form, is in visual form, the gospel. He captures that in his painting. I first came across this painting maybe 20 some odd years ago, which I can't believe it's that long. And then uh, soon after, I was at a bookstore and I saw it as a book cover. It got my attention and it was Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So much of my reflections are reflections or some of my reflections today are reflections off of his reflections. And if you have not read the book, I highly recommend uh, Henry Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a great meditation on the story of the uh, prodigal, the parable. So looking at that beautiful painting, it beautifully captures the return of the younger son. The warmth of the father's embrace of his beaten and broken son. His accepting and healing hands, welcoming him home. The father is old and almost blind, but his seeing emanates from someplace deep within himself. He embodies all the wonder that sometimes we could sum up with the word home. There's this mysterious light that envelops the two figures. It is the light of love. It is the light of the Father. It is the light of God. Rembrandt captures many theologically significant themes here. For example, if you look at the yellow-brown of the son's clothing, set against the red, the beautiful red cloak of the father, you can miss the fact that he is actually in rags. He's in his underclothes. His clothes represent his brokenness and sin. But when set against 
the love and the compassion of the Father's embrace, it is simply beautiful. It is grace. It is compassion. And the way Rembrandt captures this is he's paint, he painted this as if they're statues. The moment is frozen in time. It's an eternal embrace. So as we look at this beautiful scene, we might forget a scene that preceded this one. Before the return of the prodigal, there was the leaving. Before this peace, there was restlessness. Before the father's acceptance, there was the son's rejection. Before the father's joy over his son coming to life, there was the son's desire for his father's death. That's how the parable begins. And it's, as 21st century readers of the parable, sometimes we miss what wasn't missed for the first hearers of the parable. When the young son, when the younger son asks for his inheritance, it is as if he's telling his father, I wish you were dead. Now give me what is coming to me and leave me the hell alone. So the parable begins by the son's rejection of the father and rejection of the father's ways. It is a rejection of home and a desire for the far country. The son is not asking for some money to go out into the world and see the world and enjoy himself. He wants his father out of the way in order for him to get to his desires, his fulfillments. But before you begin to shake your head in disapproval of this young man's behavior, I would like you to think about for a moment what is at root? What is the root of evil and sin? It is, in fact, the good. You can pretty much sum up sin and evil as misplaced desires, longings, misplaced loves, misplaced worship. We are so much creatures of needs and desires that if they are not met, we will do almost anything in order for us to satisfy them. Even if in the process you become a monster. So if you rewind time and we're back in the Garden of Eden, you can see how this pattern begins to establish itself. There's the good in the garden, right? It's only the good. But then there's the serpent who begins to present the forbidden fruit to Eve in this new light. So Eve begins to really no take a notice of it. She starts to look at it and starts to look good. She starts to desire it because it offers her wisdom. 
It's a promise of becoming. There's a lot of eye movement in the Genesis story. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And good for wisdom. Another way of saying seeing. And when they take the forbidden fruit, what happens? Their eyes open. Now the funny thing about the eyes is that you could only focus on a limited number of things at one time. And once you really begin to focus on one thing, everything else sort of becomes a blur. You can no longer see it. So in this way, the prodigal's gaze has turned towards the far country. That's where he will find the fulfillment of his desires. That's where his longings will be met. Implicit in every human longing or love is the fact that we're incomplete. We are moving towards being or becoming. This is usually, to un usually important to understand. We, are, we don't start complete. We start with the drives that propel us towards being. So we are always in the process of becoming. The question is, what are you becoming? And the answer is, you are becoming what you love. You are becoming what you worship. Now, the great advantage of sinning well, I mean really sinning well, and taking on, like, embracing rebellion, is that oftentimes, not always, but often, it leads you to a place that you are no longer deluded to the false promises of misplaced loves and desires. The prodigal rather quickly comes, finds himself in this devastating place. He's squandered away his inheritance, and so he has to hire himself out to this Gentile master, and he has him feeding his pigs. And so he's feeding the pigs the pots. And while he's doing that, He's in such a desperate place, he wants to eat the pods. And not even those are given to him. This is not simply a way of saying he's seeing some bad times. This is a way of saying that he is outside of anything that could be recognized as holy. So it intensifies this picture of home, which is in fact represents everything that is holy and good. So the prodigal finds himself in this existential crisis. He has lost, he is almost good as dead. Right at that critical crisis, almost miraculously, he comes to his senses. How? He remembers he was, a, he was the son. He remembers that he is the son of his father. Here in the painting, you see his shaved head, 
representing his slavery. The ragged clothes. He has nothing left. The world has lured him him, lured him in, stripped him off of everything that he has, deformed him, rejected him, and left him as good as dead and lost. The only thing that he has that actually becomes his salvation is represented there by that little sword on the side, if you could see that in the picture. He did not get rid of that one thing that reminded him that he is still his father's son. So before he gets into this internal monologue that I will go to my father and I will tell him I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven, I no longer deserve to be called your your son. Hire me as one of your workers. Before he gets there, there is first the recognition that he is the son. So the real issue is an issue of identity. Who defines you? What makes you, you? Is there lack of images and ideals in this world constantly being set up as the standards by which you're supposed to understand yourself, your self-understanding should be measured by? Is there a lack of images of the good life? Is there lack of images of becoming? You might not have had this devastating experience like the younger son. Well, too bad for you. Because that doesn't eliminate the experience from your own life, from your own experience. And here's any time your eyes get fixated in the far for, towards the far country. The way it defines you gets a hold of your heart. The way it lures you in in order for you to find yourself. There you will find the prodigal son within yourself. And once you find yourself there, It's a slow death. It's a slow death of the self. You become increasingly dependent and addicted to the voices that say only one more step and I will accept you. You will become acceptable. One more step in your status. One more step in your education. You will be fulfilled. Come closer. Take one more step and I will embrace you. You will arrive. You will become you. But every step towards this direction leaves you more in fear, empty, anxious, and in doubt. Why? Because in attempting to find yourself this way, you are in fact losing yourself. In defining yourself, your own self, as a reflection of the far country, 
you are in fact getting closer to death. What would your self-understanding be if all of a sudden you were stripped of everything that you've come to understand as things that define you? Would you be devastated? Yet, sometimes this will get you to see yourself as you are. Broken? Yes. Unattractive? Perhaps. Flawed? Certainly. But once the masks are off, you are still sons and daughters of your father. You are still the, the beloved. Is that good enough for you? Can you accept that? Can you imagine a life without the constant comparison to your surrounding? Without the demands of the standards that you have to live up to? Can you imagine that? Well, that is freedom. That is coming back. That is going home. The difficulty is one of seeing. The difficulty is one of wanting to look. I mentioned there are many, many images in the, and voices within everywhere, within this world, that are popped up and they're constantly there, promising realization, promising yourself, promising that's where you will find yourself. And these images are beautiful, and there's multitude of them. And they're always there to remind you one more step, and you will arrive, you will become. In the midst of that myriad of images, God has placed a single image, one single sign in the midst of all of that beauty. One single sign of home. One single sign of becoming. And it's very difficult to look at. It's a dying man. It's a dying son. Deformed and beaten out of recognition, hanging on a cross. Who would want to look at that? Who wants to desire that? The one that could look inside of themselves and find the brokenness there. That's coming to your senses. So when the prodigal comes to his senses, he begins his long journey home. And while he's on his way, and while he's reciting his repentance speech on his way, the father sees him coming from afar. And the father does what no Middle Eastern man will do. No Middle Eastern father will do. None of that century, not one of his old age, he begins to run towards his son. The old man was longing also. But his was a pure longing of love. You could just imagine how many nights and days 
This man was at his field, looking over the field, shifting his gaze toward the far country, longing and hoping for his son's return. So the moment that he sees him, all is forgotten. And he begins to run towards him in joy. It's a joyful scene, but at the same time, it's a heart-wrenching scene. It's a sad scene, especially when we realize that this parable is getting us as close as we can get to a picture of the Father in heaven. I don't know what your conception of your Father in heaven is, God is, but this is the way Jesus is introducing of God the Father. There's a violation here that is not easily overcome in the father's actions. It is expressed by the older son's reaction. Return, fine. There's many ways for a penitent to, to come into restoration in Judaism. There's many ways for him to do that. But there is no place for an elderly father to run towards his sinful son. There is no place for that. Let alone to throw him a party with music and dancing and all of that. Let the prodigal return, but to bread and water, not to fan calf, to sackcloth, not a new robe, Wearing ashes, not a new ring. In tears, not in joy. Kneeling, not dancing. This is what is eating up the older brother. And it comes about when he hears the dancing and music coming out of his house. Now, there's a way of not leaving home that is as bad and disrespectful to the father as it is leaving home. There's a way of, way of remaining at church, doing your religious duties, taking on responsibilities that only work on the exterior and leaves your heart still cold and untouched by the grace and love of God. This is where the danger lies for most of us that have been doing church for a long time. Often while acquiring the virtues, resentment and judgment, like cancer, begin to develop at the underside of these virtues. And it kills whatever good there is there. And it just becomes largely resentment and judgment. There is becoming here also. There is becoming involved here also. But it is not becoming like the father. You look at the picture. You look at the painting. The older son and the father do look alike externally. They're almost identical. The, clo uh, the cloak, the clothes, the headgear, even the beard. They externally, they look a lot 
like one another. But look at the way Rembrandt paints this mysterious light in relationship to both figures. It is full and complete in and around the Father. Where if you look at the sun, it's only really shining at his face. The rest of his body is still in shadow, in darkness. The light on him has, has not penetrated his entire self. It has not gone from his face, his head, to his heart. So he has as much an identity issue as the younger son. In this case, even worse. There, is, there might be much truth to this guy, but there is very little grace, very little love. So as it turns out that he sees himself as a consequence of just that, he sees himself as a slave of his father and not a real son. So there's a huge irony. The lost son, the prodigal son, the younger son, the rebellion son, goes and loses himself. But when he comes to his senses, on his return, in his return home, he finds himself. While he was willing to become a servant of his father, the father quickly assures him that that is not a possibility. It's his, he is his son. While the older son who has been there all along sees himself as a slave. Fortunately, the parable is not primarily about either son. The parable is primarily about the father. The father is the source of identity for both sons. He loves them equally. He goes out to receive both sons. This is instructive, especially when you think about it in the context that Jesus is, is uh, telling this story. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, represented by the older son, and the sinners and tax collectors, represented by the younger son, both equally are asked to come in. Both are asked to draw into this center. The gospel is more than forgiveness of sins. That's a huge part of it, forgiveness of sins. We begin there, and we go back to it constantly throughout our entire, throughout our whole lives. But if you stop there, Two extreme things might happen to you. Either you'll get into the business of sin management, or on the other extreme, you will give into it constantly and always, all the time. The gospel is even more than about coming home, it is about becoming. Wherever you find yourself, if these two are to represent different parts of our journeys, the two sons, wherever you find yourself, the aim is to come into the center to become like the father. 
The journey is not complete, nowhere close to be complete, not unless that starts to develop. It doesn't begin by doing things to be acceptable. That's the way of the world. It begins by acceptance and embrace. But then it moves from there to becoming. This is where something unimaginable begins to happen. You truly become yourselves once your heart becomes one with the Father. You become yourself as you become like the Father. It is not an easy place, that center. It is as much a place of grief as is it a place of joy. It's not an easy place. It's a place that you accept the good, bad, and ugly of life. It is a place of maturity. It is the place where you become the healing hands of compassion, healing hands of God to your lost brothers, lost and broken brothers and sisters, to your lost and broken sons and daughters. There are some of you here that are very close to this place. You've spent a good deal of time in that center. I have personally experienced your healing hands in my own journey, not least my own father's. I'm still quite a distance far off from this place. For the longest time, whenever I looked at this painting, all I could see myself as was the prodigal son, the younger son. Then over time, I began to see myself in the older son, increasingly, increasingly so. But I've come to realize that all of us all of us are called to enter that place of rest, that place of acceptance, that place that begins with love and compassion and spills over to the point that you become increasingly like the one that is embracing you. It is not an easy place, but it's a place where the true self begins to emerge. It is a place of coming back to life. It is the place where the broken puppet Pinocchio is no longer simply mended, but he becomes a real boy or a real girl. That is the gospel. Amen.